Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. We are presently in a series that we entitled The Church on Mission. And we're looking at the importance and priority of mission. And if we're a local church that doesn't just want to be passionate about knowing and applying the gospel, we want to be passionate about proclaiming the gospel as well. People need to hear about Jesus. And so today we're looking at the importance and priority of prayer in mission. The role that prayer has, the incredibly important role that prayer has in the mission that God is calling us to, to go make disciples of all nations. So if you'd like a title for this morning's message, call it Moving Forward on Our Knees. And we're going to be giving ourselves primarily to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18, 19, and 20. But by our context, we're going to start reading from verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, the words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Lord, your word is powerful. And I pray your word would once again have a wonderful, powerful effect on our souls today. Lord, did you open our eyes to the importance and priorities of prayer? Do you help us to see where prayer fits in, not just as a tag along in our lives, but as an absolute essential? So Lord, fan into flame the words that you have spoken first today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I went away for a few nights to celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary, and we just had the best of times. You know, we would planned, our wedding anniversary was actually in April, we'd planned to go to Fiji, then something called COVID happened, you've probably heard of it. And so we planned to go to the Sundays, and something called Queensland happened and they cancelled that as well. So we had two nights in the Hunter Valley and then two nights in Port Stephens to celebrate our 20-year anniversary and we had the best of times. And during that time, we reminisced some about our actual honeymoon because just a few weeks ago, we were in the lap of luxury, but we reminisced about our honeymoon and our honeymoon was not the lap of luxury, it was a disaster. 
It was an absolute comedy of errors, actually. I mean, for a start, I was in charge of the booking, so I booked us to go to Portugal. I thought this would be exotic. The challenge is, I discovered when we arrived, that Portugal in April is out of season, which means it's cold and closed. So when we arrived, it's absolutely freezing. There's no way you can go swimming or anything, and everywhere's closed. So we went into the town and the village, and we're looking around, and we're like, this looks like a nice shop. Oh, it's closed. This looks like a nice place to eat. It's closed. Everywhere was closed. Nothing was open. It all opens in May. I didn't know that. We got married in April. That's going to be a problem. Second thing that I quickly discovered after we arrived is the hotel that we booked appeared to be for over 80s pretty much only. So it was like walking into a home care centre for the elderly, which is fine, but not necessarily for your honeymoon. So we're sitting down having dinner, and that's fine, but like everybody else, looks like they may not have long left to live. It's not quite what I imagined for our honeymoon. And then we had what became known as Taylor folklore, the infamous spa incident. You see, in our hotel, we had a spa, a bath that bubbled incentively. And I'm just like, man, this is going to be the highlight of because there's nothing else going on. We are going to enjoy a spa together. We'd never been in a spa at that point in our lives. We thought this is probably well worth a go. And so we arrived down to the basement of the hotel to go into the spa. And we arrived and it was, it was a nice size. We're thinking this is looking quite good. But I'd always imagined that spas were filled with hundreds and hundreds of bubbles going crazy. Not this one. It had one small stream of bubbles emerging from the ground. And that was it. So we got in the spa and we did what all British people do. We start moaning that this is just terrible and how did we come here and I don't know. And then we decided to take it in turns for the stream of bubbles. And it's like, oh, it's your turn now, Danny. Go on, go ahead. It's my turn again. And so that's what we kind of did. And for about 30 minutes, that's what we were doing. We're sitting in this spa, moaning a little bit, kind of depressed that this is not quite how I imagined our honeymoon going. I particularly didn't imagine the spa going. I thought it would be better in this. At which point, this three-year-old, who must have been like some type of grandson of people that were actually staying in the hotel, he walks up behind my head that was leaning back and he just stamps his feet and then goes off giggling. And as he stamped his feet, I noticed there was a shudder in the spa. And suddenly the spa sprung to life with loads and loads of bubbles. It would appear that we had spent the last 30 minutes in a spa sharing one stream of bubbles and we hadn't turned it on. We had simply not understood that this spa needed to be turned on. And this three-year-old, he just had one of those looks on his face. <laughs> you idiot. You know, that's kind of what it was like as we were in the spa in that moment. We had spent a great deal of time sitting in a spa sharing one stream of bubbles until one three-year-old kid came and turned the power on. There was simply no power going on to what was taking place. And the reason why I mention that is because I think in mission, we can do exactly the same thing. We can sit in the spa of our lives feeling a bit unimpressed by what is taking place and not realising maybe we're sitting there unimpressed because we've forgotten to turn the power on. See, you and I as Christians, we have a high and holy calling on our lives. We've been called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Paul himself says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. It's so inclusive. 
Anyone who calls on the name of a Jesus Christ will be saved. But as he tells us, how can they call on one in whom they've not believed? And how they, can they believe without hearing? And how can they hear without somebody telling them? We're called to tell them. It's our job to tell people about Jesus so they may call on his name and get saved. And as Riley pointed out a few weeks ago, I think so well, contextualization is so important in this. We need to be all things to all men so that by all means we may win some. We can't just let off truth bombs here and there and think that's going to do it. No, we need to be like Jesus. We need to be a friend of sinners. We actually need to know people that don't know Jesus and love people that don't know Jesus and really get to know them as friends of our lives. And we can do that with absolute confidence because as we saw a couple of weeks ago, God is sovereign. The places where you work, the places where you live, the places that you are spending time with strangers, getting to know people you haven't met before. Your families, they're not accidental. They're all ordained by the sovereign hand of God that cares even for the sparrows in the sky. And fear of man. Well, it's an issue. But as Brendan pointed out to us so last week, it's an issue that we can overcome. See, fear of man, in my opinion, is something that if you've got a pulse, you probably struggle with. It is that prevalent. I think fear of man is something that everybody struggles with. Now and again, you get somebody that says, no, I don't. And you think, oh, I think you probably do. I think we all find ourselves at different times sheltering ourselves because we're bothered about what people may think of us. And the truth is, those types of sins, they're not just coming from within. They are coming from within. But one of the things we need to understand is, are you aware that Satan wants to fan that into flame in your life? He wants to do all he can. See, Satan is not somebody we give a lot of airtime to, but it's exactly what Paul is talking about here. In verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Is my sin my problem? Yes. But is there an evil one that wants to fan that into flame in your life? Oh, you better believe it. He wants to do all he can to fuel these types of things in your life. To stop you from sharing the gospel with people. To fan into flame the fear of man in your heart. And so what are we to do? Well, he tells us, verse 11, put on the whole armour of God. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So when to get dressed for war, I think one of our challenges as Christians, particularly in Australia, is it's so nice, we think that life is peacetime. Whereas the Apostle Paul is telling us all the time, as Christians, you are at war. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion. You are at war. Take your stations. And so he tells us to put on then the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Why? Well, so that we may be able to stand firm. As we gaze at the Lord, as we gaze at the Lord in His Word, We are filled with truth. Why? So that we may be able to stand firm against the darts of the enemy and the lies of the enemy, causing us in part to give into the fear of man, which causes us in part not to want to tell anybody about Jesus. But here's the challenge. We can know all those things and we can do all those things that I just mentioned. We can textualize. We can understand the need to tell people about Jesus. We can stand firm. And yet even then, 
we can find ourselves very ineffective. Because even then, we can find ourselves sitting in a spa, sharing the occasional bubble in our mission, and nothing else happening. Why? Well, because we forgot to turn the power on. We forgot to actually bring this thing to life. And the thing that I so love about this text, particularly verses 18 and 19 and 20, is it's right here that Paul helps us see that prayer is the means by which we turn this whole thing on. Prayer is not just an optional extra in our life that we can take or leave and see how we're going. No, prayer is the fundamental thing that is needed in our lives and in our mission. Because prayer, as designed by God, is the very means by which the mission of the gospel advances. Prayer is the power. Until you turn the power on, all you're doing is sitting in a spa, sharing a bubble, very ineffective. Have you ever experienced that as Christians? You just find you're not getting anywhere. It's not piercing anything. You don't seem to be moving. Here's my question. Have you turned the power on? And so often as we look back, you realise, I haven't. I know the people I'm trying to reach out to. I'm actually doing it. I'm booking in dates. But I'm not sure I've been praying for them. Prayer is actually the most important thing. You know, what I love then about this text is Paul's tone with the Ephesian church is not one of rebuke. He's not irritated with them. He's not telling them off. He's not like, you should pray. Come on, what are you doing? That's not his tone at all. His tone is just one of helping him see Do you see the opportunity this is? This is how you embrace the power of God. For the maker of heaven and earth, the one who was and is and is to come, is on the end of your prayers. Are you aware? This is how you access him, by talking to him and communicating to him. And to that end then, he gives us four very clear exhortations and encouragements in this text about prayer that if embraced by us, can have a radical, radical, radical effect on our missions. And so there's four things that I want to point out this morning, four things that I want to try and draw your attention to about this on button of prayer this morning. Paul is holding us by the hand and helping us see the profound opportunity of prayer, but also then how we go about it. Four things, and here's the first. Number one, we are to pray, he says in verse 18, we are to pray at all times, In the Spirit. All times. You'll notice in that text, in one verse, it mentions the word all four times. They're the different point. And he says to pray at all times in the Spirit. You know, right off the bat, that can be both encouraging, I think, and discouraging. And it can be discouraging because you think, what does he mean? (laughs) You know, different times in different texts, Paul says that we're to pray without ceasing. You ever thought about that? Like, does that mean that I have to start now and then, like, never stop? So I just keep going, day and night. Is, is that what he means? Well, no, that's, that's not what he means. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way so helpfully. He said, it is not just that we are to pray, but we are to pray always. That is, at all times of the day and sometimes even in the night. Paul does not mean then that we are to do nothing but pray. Of course not. We would get nothing else done. And Paul himself did not do this. no. He means that prayer is to be a natural and consistent part of our lives. 
That is so helpful. Paul is not saying that you, from here on in, do nothing else but pray. Just spend every waking minute of your day praying. No, that's not what he's saying. What he is saying, though, is prayer is not just to be relegated to special seasons or special events or special moments or special days. No, prayer is to be a natural and consistent part of our normal lives. Why? Well, because prayer every minute of every day is an opportunity to talk to God. Prayer is an opportunity to access 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the power and glory of God. Why? Because He is always, always there. See, as Christians, it would be fair and biblically accurate to say that you are never, ever, ever, ever alone. Never. You're never by yourself. Psalm 139 says it this way. David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. King David wants us to understand, Lord, you are always there. I can never be anywhere outside of your presence. You are always present in your fullness everywhere. It's one of the great themes of the Bible. Jesus picks up on it in John 14. In John 14, he's explaining to his disciples that, look, really soon, I'm going to be going. I'm going to be leaving you guys. It's known as the farewell discourse. And while he's talking to them about it, he can tell and see on their faces, they're getting pretty anxious about this. What do you mean you're leaving? You've been with us for three years. You're our guy. And seeing that, he says, listen, do not fear. I will not leave you as orphans. And then he goes on to explain to them, listen, it's actually good that I go. Because when I go, I will send another just like me who will be called the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, as he comes into your life, both the Father and the Son will dwell in you. Staggering news. In effect, you have the Trinity as a Christian living in you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not just far off in some distant country that, can you hear me? He's right there. He's in you. He's ever present to you. And that's what Paul is picking up on here. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Whether you're happy or despondent on, at work or on holiday, Sick or healthy, it doesn't matter. Pray at all times in the Spirit, understanding that in the Spirit, God is with you. And so access Him. Talk to Him. It's how you turn the power on. Without that, it's just little old you sitting in the spa. But it's how you turn the power on, because you talk to Him. And then He says, number two, we're to pray with all prayer and supplication. All prayer and supplication. You know, what he's really saying there is that we are to pray with all kinds of different prayers. Why? Well, because life is full of all kinds too. It's varied and many. In the words of the great theologian Forrest Gump, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And it's true. You never know what's coming your way. 
you never know what's going to be happening in your life. And so our prayers, they can't just be a one-directional one thing. No, they should be alive and varied. So we're to pray with all prayer and supplication. You know, one of the things that's helped me in this over the years is R.C. Sproul's acrostic, which is ACTS, A-C-T-S. A is for adoration, C is for confession, T is for thanksgiving, and S is supplication. He's trying to help us see how prayers need to be rounded. So A for adoration, so prayers of reverence and joy and adoration as we adore the splendor and worth and majesty of God. You know, this is really easy to do. I think it just needs to become a habit in our lives. We should be able to look out that window right now and realize he made those trees. He made that bark. He made that grass. He's the one giving light. He's the one that gave man the ability to actually make that bar outside. How on earth did he give man the ability to create windows? You know, we should be able to see things and look at things and realize this is all the Lord. One day we will gather before the throne room of heaven and it says that even the trees will clap their hands before the Lord. It's just training our eyes to actually see what he is doing and to see what he has made and sustaining. They're prayers of adoration as we realize how majestic and worthy he is. And then there's prayers of confession. Prayers that come from the cry of our hearts saying, Lord, would you forgive me for that? Lord, I've wronged you. Lord, I've not been the man that you've called me to be. I've made errors in this. And you know, if you're ever nervous about doing that before the Lord, I don't want him to know. He knows your thoughts before they even happen. He knows what you're thinking now. He knows if you're not even that interested in the message right now. He knows. You cannot hide a thing from the Lord. So we should never be worried or ashamed about telling him. He already knows. Now we're just communicating to him and sharing the passions of our hearts and asking for forgiveness where we wronged him. Then there's prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of gratitude and thankfulness. And I submit to you, there are always 10,000 reasons to praise. Always. We just have to train our mind to actually see it. We're called in the, in the word to give thanks in all circumstances. We can't look at 2020 and say, oh, it's been a bad year, nothing to give thanks for. No, negative. There's many things to give thanks to God for this year. We're called to give thanks in all things. One of the privileges I have with traveling is traveling and actually coming back. I mean, I remember when I was in Liberia and I'm in this room. It's a terrible room. The fridge isn't working properly. I don't even know if it was officially a fridge. And in the night, I can hear rustling of different papers that I'd got out. And I'd, I always bring my snacks because that's what I live on. That's what I survive on. I could hear rustling. And I turn the light on. There are a number of rats eating their way through my snacks in my bedroom. Oh, please, Jesus, help me. What am I going to do? And I realized I'm just going to have to turn the light off. So I turned the light off and then I could hear scurrying. And I turned the light back on again. I could see all these rats jumping up the, going up the, the um, curtains. It was terrible. But here's the thing, when you come back, you start to see Australia with very different eyes. I mean, even Coles is like a heaven experience. You go and you're like, there is food everywhere. It's just a majestic. You know, sometimes we, part of, the way, part of the reason why we're not grateful is we just take everything for granted. But when you have eyes to see, you realize the Lord has blessed us so, so much. It's staggering. And so we offer prayers of thanksgiving and gratitude to the Lord. And then there's prayers of supplication, literally prayers of petition and request. You know, Jesus clearly imagined that we would be praying every day, which is why he teaches us to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus' example was prayer every day. He got up real early to spend time with his father. He knew he needed it. You know, if Jesus needed it, how much more do we need it? So Paul tells us, pray with all prayer 
and supplication. James tells us you do not have because you do not ask. We need to be a praying people. And then he tells us, number three, that we're to pray with alertness and all perseverance. This is how he says it in verse 18. He says, to that end, keep alert and with, keep alert with all perseverance. He's talking about prayer. You know, this issue of alertness is actually an allusion to Jesus here, and in particular, Mark chapters 13 and 14. At the end of those chapters, Jesus is about to be betrayed and crucified, and the disciples are all over the place in massive disarray. So if you pay attention to Mark chapter 13 and 14, the phrase, keep watch or stay alert or stay awake, happens all the time. So chapter 13, he's saying, listen, guys, I'm going to be going soon to stay awake, keep alert, stay awake, keep alert, stay awake, keep alert. He wants them to pray that they not be tempted by evil and depart. And then in chapter 14, he invites Peter and James and John. Listen, I'm going to go into the Garden of Gethsemane. My, my soul is, is about to burst with anguish. Come and please pray for me. One job, stay awake and pray. Three times comes back to them asleep and not praying. And it's almost like Paul is saying here is, listen, as disciples, we have a second chance here. Don't make the same mistake that they made. They were not alert. They were not awake. We need to be alert in our prayer. You never know what is coming next in your life. It's a bad time to start praying once it's already happened. Pray before it's even happened. Stay alert. Stay on our toes. Realize there is an evil one that is seeking to devour you and get you and pull you out of the kingdom of God. Keep praying. Stay alert. And then he says something that really caught my attention, namely this call to pray with all perseverance. And that really struck me this week. Because the more I thought about it, the more I realised as Christians here in Australia, and I think in truth all across the Western world, the cards, I think, really are stacked against us in this. Both culturally and with the enemy. I mean, let me explain. First of all, culturally. Our culture does little to cultivate perseverance. Very little. Because we live in a now culture. I want something, boom, I'm going to get it. I need it now. We're not taught naturally in our culture, anywhere in the Western world, to have to wait. And that's changed a lot. And it's changed a lot in my lifetime. Let me give you an illustration. When I was a kid, I was about 13 years old, my parents bought a family computer. It's the first computer we ever had. It was a Spectrum 48K with RAM pack. It was terrible. Your phone has got more power in it. But back in the day, this was like, hey, it's quite good. But when you wanted to actually play something on this computer, the only way you could play a game is you had a separate cassette deck. And you younger people are like, what's a cassette? It's just a thing, okay? It's the way it used to be. It was a cassette deck. And you'd put the cassette in. You'd press down. And you'd press play. And the little wire would go into the computer. And you would be waiting for about 20 minutes for a game to load. So that's what you would do. You'd just wait. And there'd be all these lines on the screen that would make this really weird sound. It was great. You just wait for 20 minutes. And then at the end of the 20 minutes, it would just stop. And you would see on the screen, error, 0.1. That was a sad moment. That was a sad moment. Because that, what that meant was you didn't have the cassette deck quite loud enough. So you turn it up just a little bit and we go again. So it often took about 40 minutes to load a game onto the computer to play. It was the way it was. Well, this week, 
my wife and I went out to the shop, Harvey Norman, because we wanted to buy a TV Black Friday. This is the week. And what I found shocking is there's actually little computers now in TVs. I didn't know this. I don't know where I've been, but there's little computers in TVs. And so we went into Harvey Norman and we saw two screens that are absolutely identical. They're totally identical. Apart from one is a lot more expensive than the other. So I said to the guy, can you explain to me, these two TVs look identical, but like one's more expensive than the other, and I don't understand why. And he's like, oh, yes, there's a reason. Okay, tell me the reason. And he said, just watch this. So he goes to, goes to the first one, and he's like, let me show you how this works. And he turns it on, and then he, he shows the screen's on, it's all happening, it's fine. And then he presses Netflix on the button. And when he presses Netflix, for one second, this little spinning thing comes on, and then it goes to Netflix. One second. And he said, did you see that? And I'm like, what? (laughs) He said, that took about a second. That's far too long. At which point Emma went, (laughs) and he was like, and then he said, it's a very long time. And then he showed me this one, and you clicked on Netflix, Boom, straight on, no spinny circle, just instant. And he said, that's what you want. (laughs) When I was a kid, you waited 40 minutes to play a game. Now I can't even wait a second. I can't even wait a second. I have to have this this TV so that I'm not waiting a second for Netflix alone. Times change. When I was a kid, every now and again, my family, my mum and dad would take us to the fish and chip shop. We were allowed takeaway fish and chips. It was great. You'd get to the front of the queue and you'd say, I would like sausage and chips or fish and chips, whatever you wanted. And, and it took ages. You would see people after you ordered, picking up the potatoes, taking them out the back, cutting them, and you're like, this is going to... And you would, you would just wait. You'd wait outside in the cave. You'd wait 20 minutes before they give you fish and chips. That was normal. Now you go to McDonald's, and if it's more than 30 seconds, you're like, it's taking a long time. I've been sitting in my car ages. Is it going to be long? You're like, what is it? Time is money, you know. I'm a pastor, busy person. 30 seconds. Houses. When I was a kid, when family members or relatives or friends bought a house, the entire house was filled with hand-me-downs. It was all different people that came into the community. They gave you a TV and they gave you stuff for your house and... You're sleeping in Auntie Ethel's bed for the first five years of your life. This is the way it is. You had no money. And then you would try and save up all your money, which you do for three months. And you'd be like, guess what I bought? Guess what? A toaster. I bought a toaster. And that was the way it was. Now, people move out and they get a house and they want everything new and they want everything now. I need it now. I need it now. And it's a culturally assumed normal thing. In less than 30 years, our world has massively changed. And one of the fruits of that is we are not taught to persevere at all. You want it now. It needs to be instant. And if it's not instant, do something else. No perseverance. But now, when it comes into perseverance, I think our culture is stacked against us. And when it comes to perseverance, I think our enemy is stacked against us as well. We've read about him in verse 11 and 12 right here. He schemes against us all the time. One of his schemes, I believe, is he consistently undermines our prayers and our thoughts to pray. 
And so we've been praying for something and we've been praying maybe for three days, which seems like an eternity in our time because of the way the culture suggests length of time on things. And Satan is instantly in there. Why are you bothering praying? He's clearly not listening. He's clearly not doing anything. The TV responds in a second. He's not responding. That must mean he's not listening. He's not there or he doesn't care about you. Or maybe... Maybe you're just not gifted in prayer. So don't worry about it. Leave the praying of Sovereign Grace Church to Coyote Williams. He knows how to pray. You are clearly not gifted in this way. So just give up. Let somebody else do it. Or maybe prayer just isn't something you've got time for. I mean, God understands. He knows how busy you are. He sees that you've got preschool children and you can't possibly do anything else apart from care for those preschool children. Life is busy. Life is war. There's a lot going on. You haven't got time. So just take a break from prayer. Let somebody else do it for a time. Consistently undermines with lies. Deceives us. We live in a culture and have an enemy that really does stack the cards against us somewhat in terms of praying with perseverance. My friends, that's why it's so important that we be a people who are washed by this word. We cannot let our lives be dictated by our culture. We must let our lives be dictated by biblical culture. What the Bible says on things. And when we are washed with the word, what we realize is the Bible teaches us about praying with perseverance, about seeking and asking and knocking and keeping going and keeping going and not giving up. I think it's something older people do a thousand times better than younger people do. Now, they come from a different generation, but it's something we've got to learn again, how to keep going. You know, while I was studying this this week, one of the commentaries I was reading on this is Kent Hughes' commentary on Ephesians. And he shares a story in there, which is a personal story of how this worked in his own life. And I was really provoked by it. This is what he says. He says, One February, a few years ago, My wife and I vacationed with my brother and his wife in northern Maine. Personally, I had been praying for him for over 30 years, since we were boys, that he would come to know Christ and be born again. We journeyed to our snowboard vacation with great expectations, which were not to be disappointed. The second night that we were together, he broached the subject of Jesus, saying in essence, let's talk about my soul. And all of us then talked long into the night about our journeys to Christ. On the following morning, I said I would like to talk with him alone. To which he replied that, he was, that that was exactly what he was going to suggest as well. So in the leather-chaired ambience of an old 1920s wainscot-panelled library, we reviewed together the essentials of the faith, then got on our knees together so that he could repent and ask Christ into his life. Once done, we stood and hugged and walked to the other end of the house where he announced, if I die tonight, then I'll beat you all there. Then embraced his lovely wife for several minutes while we all stood around and wiped our tears. But though he had been lost, now he was found. Kent Hughes had been praying for his brother for 30 years. And as I read that, I thought, Lord, thank thank you that Kent Hughes didn't stop. What a wonder that he didn't give in. 
on day three, well, clearly God's not listening. There's no point. He just kept going, believing, believing that God loves perseverance. He just kept praying. Same was true of George Mueller. When you read his autobiography, you see this on several occasions. He just had a list of people that he prayed for. Two brothers, the two guys that he prayed for for 50 years of his life, 50 years, gave himself daily to pray for these men. One of them became a Christian just before he died, just before George Mueller died. And the other one became a Christian just after George Mueller died. 50 years. I think a brother of Yui, praying for Uncle Stephen and Auntie Jeanette. 20 years he prayed for his mum and dad. And then just last year, we had the privilege of praying for them just outside. Praise God that Yui didn't think, well, it didn't work. For 20 years, kept praying, kept persevering. And what a thrill to know that Auntie Jeanette is now with Jesus, worshiping Jesus. Thank the Lord that Uncle Yui didn't say, you know what? I've been praying for like 20 minutes. He hasn't answered. I'll give it a minute. Brothers and sisters, we need to be informed by the Bible, not informed by our culture on this issue. And Jesus, in his word, clearly commands us to pray with perseverance. To keep going. And then finally, the fourth part of this story, according to Paul, is that we are to pray for all the saints. All of them. See, there are so many things that are worthy of our prayers. But what Paul is helping us see here is that the saints are to have the lion's share of our prayers. And I must admit, for me, that really struck me this week. I mean, it is so easy to pray for so many different things and forget to pray for our brothers and sisters. And what Paul is saying is you need to switch that round. It's great to pray for lots of things with all kinds of prayers. Wonderful. But make sure you are praying for all the saints, brothers and sisters. Now, in an unspecific way, that that obviously means the nations, for our brothers and sisters all the way around the world. So in Sovereign Grace, um, as a family of churches, we have the privilege of being involved in 40 different nations across the world. And historically, we've taken once a month out just to pray for different nations and different people. It's wonderful. It's harder during COVID because we're not sure how we're going to get into small circles and be able to do that. So we're not able to do it at the moment. But the heart is to do that. And individually, we do need to be doing that. Praying for people across the world that God would keep them strong, that God would help them. Just this week, our brother Barnabas and his wife Radhika in Nepal found out they've got COVID. They're an older couple. And then his father, who's already very ill, lives in their home, welcomed in the poor. We need to be praying for these people, crying out to God, Lord, help them, strengthen them. In an unspecific way, Paul is calling us to pray for the nations, but in a very specific way. He's also no doubt calling us to pray for the names of those who we are connected and committed to within the context of the local church. And no one did that, I think, better than the Apostle Paul himself. And he exemplifies it right here. I'm not getting that from some random. He's saying it right here. You see, when you examine Paul, he was a man that didn't just pray for the nations. He prayed for names. See, this church in Ephesus was no doubt a very dear church to Paul's heart. It was a church that he himself had planted. 
He himself got to preach the gospel in Ephesus and a church ultimately was born that he began. And he's deeply concerned for them. Right at the end of this letter in verse 21, he says, So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Remember Tychicus from Colossians? Same guy. He's in the same prison right here. Guess what? He's not just taking the letter to the Colossians. He's on his way to Ephesus as well. Paul wants Ephesus also to be strengthened in the faith and be encouraged to receive this letter and be encouraged in their faith and to hear how he's going as well. Tychicus, I'm sending somebody I know to you because I know you and I love you. And Paul prays for them. In chapter one of the book of Ephesians, nearly half the chapter is a prayer. I'm praying for you that you may know the love of God in all its fullness, that you may delight in the glories of all that he's done for you. He then echoes that in the last two verses of this letter, verse 23 and 24. He says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. It's not just a benediction. It's the heart of his prayer. Listen, I want you to understand peace from the Lord. I want you to understand grace from the Lord. I want you to know his love for you. Paul prays for them by name because he knows them and loves them. And the truth is, make no mistake, Paul recognises his need for them as well. That if he's going to do his mission, he needs them. And so having encouraged them to pray for all the saints, this is what he says in verse 19. And he says, and pray also for me. The words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I was really challenged by that this week. You know, so often when we examine the Apostle Paul, you just think of him as some type of superhero, super courageous guy, put him before a council or groups of people, no dramas, I'm just going to tell him. Yet actually what Paul is doing is bringing you behind the scenes here and saying, hey guys, I'm just the same as you. I'm fearful, I'm nervous, this is hard. Would you pray for me? Pray for me that I may be strengthened. Pray for me that I might be the ambassador that God's called me to be. Pray for me that I may not give in to the fear of man, but fear the Lord and tell him the truth. If Paul needed that type of prayer, how much more do you and I need that type of prayer? And what he's talking about there is other people praying for you. Other people praying for you. That you may be an ambassador for Christ. You know, in all honesty, the prayers of the saints is still something that we very much need to this day, isn't it? I mean, make no mistake, as Christians, the odds are stacked against us somewhat in our evangelism. Why? Because they're dead. (laughs) They are dead in their transgressions and sins. You are preaching to corpses, to dead men and women walking. They can't see, they can't hear, they are uninterested. Anybody becoming a Christian is a miracle of grace. Outside a miracle of grace, no one's coming. And then we have the audacity to just have a go and try, I'm going to need to tell people about Jesus, got to plan it, got to get them in. No, no, that is not going to be very effective. We need to turn the power on and now it's effective. Because Jesus, when he is on the move in people's lives, boom, dead men can, can become alive. 
Blind people can start to see that all miracles, we must turn the power on. And that power, it would appear, according to Paul, in part comes from other people praying for you. Praying for you. My friends, if you're not already then praying for the brothers and sisters that you're connected to around you, thinking in particular of your growth groups and your GCs, how long have you spent praying for them this year, specifically by name? I want to encourage you, if that's already a practice for you, then in a grace-motivated way, please start. And here's why. Because we need you. I need you. There's no way I'm going to be able to do my job and tell people about Jesus, both personally and as a pastor, without people praying. There's no way you're going to be effective in your mission without people praying. You know, two ladies that I were reminded of this week as I considered this passage was two ladies by the name of Hetty and Iwin. There were two ladies that I had the privilege of pastoring in the United Kingdom when I was there. And they were two of the dearest ladies you could ever hope to meet. They were two sisters, never got married, lived together all their lives. And when I knew them, they were already at least in their 80s. So they would totter into church every week, even in the cold and the ice, but they'd get there on time and they would get around folk and love people. And I remember saying to them at different points, you know what, ladies, because they would thank me for messages, thank you for sermons. And I remember saying to them at different points, listen, I am grateful that I've taught you something, but you have taught me far more than I've ever taught you. And one of the things they taught me is prayer. They were prayers. They knew how to pray these prayers. And so at different times, they would invite me over to their house and we would sit and we'd have a cup of tea, have a biscuit, it would be wonderful, you do what pastors do. I'd love being with them, I'd love being with them. And then the conversation would always never literally turn. We should pray. Amen. What do you want to pray for, ladies? And that, it was always the same thing. They're going to pray for the nations and pray for names. So you'd sit down, and like, okay, so what are we praying for? And they're like, David, today we are going to pray for Burundi. I'm like, Burundi, where is even that? I don't even know where it is. So they give you a bit of detail on Burundi. And you would just sit there and listen to them pray and they'd be praying for the saints in Burundi, praying that the gospel would go forward in Burundi. And then inevitably, they would start praying for names of people in the church. And this would go on. And this was a daily exercise for them. Praying for names. Praying for people. Praying for specifics of things that are going on. When you were around this couple and praying with them, you felt like you were on holy ground. This, this pair of ladies know Jesus in a profound way. Remember, Iwin, just before she died, I was already living in Australia by this point, but she got cancer and she was coming to the end of her day. She was actually admitted to a hospital on the premise that her life is coming to an end and she knew it was coming to an end. And she was pretty happy about that. She wanted to go see her sister who had also died by now and she wanted to meet Jesus. She wanted to go be with the Lord. But it seemed that these days that she was meant to be living for became like weeks and then months. I mean, she just kept going for, forever. And she called my colleague, Pastor Pete Greasley, back home in the UK. She called him up and said, listen, I need you to come and, come and see me in hospital. He's like, sweet, I'll come in. And he turns up in hospital and he, said, he, t- he told me on the phone, he's like, she's just beaming. And she said, Pete... I don't know why I'm still here. 
I thought I should be dead by now. But then she said this. She said, but you know what? I believe God must have me here for a reason. So tell me how I can pray. Tell me how I can pray for you and pray for the church. She understood even though my life is coming in, if God's keeping me alive, it must be to pray. You know what, folks? They were profound ladies in that church. They were loved ladies in that church. They were known ladies in our church and in our area. They carried people on their hearts. And it is my sincere prayer that this church ever-growingly may be filled with more Hetty and Iwins as well. You don't have to have a platform to have a role. Prayer is maybe the best and most amazing role anybody can have. And it's the primary role we're called to. May we be a praying people. Why? Because we need each other. You need those that are sitting around you. We desperately need each other. You know, 20 years ago, when Emma and I sat in that indoor spa sharing the singular stream of bubbles, it was less than impressive. But when that kid came in and pressed that power button, well, everything changed pretty quick. That, that pool erupted with bubbles in that moment. We had just forgotten to turn the power on. In all honesty, I think we can do exactly the same in mission. We get it all rode up. We forget to turn the power on. We forget to pray. My friends, would prayer as a result of this message be our story? We must be a praying people. So may we plan for it. May we prepare for it. And may the power of God then be the story in our mission. Let's pray.